0: My name is A.J. Exner. Uh, I am an elder candidate here at Hill City, and I had a chance to preach. It was last year sometime, I can't remember, but it was when we were still at Jeff Ave, and uh, obviously I was invited back to do this. So I, my goal of reaching mediocrity, I must have exceeded it. So I'm happy, and hopefully my 2017 starts off better than Mariah Carey's. So um, before we get going, uh, let's just start in a word of prayer, and we'll dive right in. Dear Heavenly Father God, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as a body here today. We thank you for the blessing of being able to come under one roof as one body, though with many different parts moving in different ways, that we can come together today and move in a common purpose, with a common goal in mind, and that is to worship and glorify you. Father, I pray these words today uh, that they are rebuking to those who need rebuke, encouraging to those who need encouragement, and challenging to those who need to be challenged. Father, may your spirit fill this place and work in the lives of the people here today. Amen. All right, so to fill you in a little bit, when Brad asked me uh, to preach today, you know, I asked him what I think most people would probably ask in that particular situation. I was like, hey, that sounds great. What do you want me to preach on? And I got the answer that's probably not the one most people want to hear, ironically enough, and that is uh, whatever you want, Uh, because I'm the kind of guy that, I like taking something and dissecting it a little bit, kind of picking it apart. And so when his response to my question was, whatever you want, I was, first I was kind of like, "ah, eh, dang, well, oh well, we'll see what we can do. But as we got going and talking a little bit, I tried to think of something that would be, that would be practical for us here at Hill City, that would be applicable to the current state of where we're at and the calendar of events coming up and so as you can see there's a lot going on but as we looked into it and thought about it our eyes came to the fact that starting immediately uh, or there's signups for our city groups and so today i just want to take some time and talk about a community and why community is an important part in the life of a believer so a lot of you guys have come up uh, after your first full semester uh, of your city group and from what we've heard from everybody it sounds like it went really really well which is exciting to hear uh, but for some of you this last semester just didn't work you had uh, family stuff come up you had life stuff go up and so for a lot of you guys you you couldn't wait to sign up for this next semester and so my my advice to you in this time is to be proactive uh, us le- the leaders here we are not as organized as we'd like to be it's a new year's resolution uh and so my advice to you is to stay proactive we have a facebook page that we we'll post that on we have email updates that go out every week called city lights that we send that information to um, and honestly even if it's a sunday morning and you have we have our volunteers out there uh, that have name tags go up to one of them and say hey i want to sign up for a city group and they'll be able to get you the right information and get you plugged in, and so for those of you who are really wanting to do this, my advice, and my recommendation, and my plea to you is to be proactive. Now, that being said, there might be some of you who are thinking, you know, maybe you're newer here, and you're thinking, okay, you know, I've tried, you know, these, these home groups, and other churches, whoever, the community groups, life groups, a bunch of different names, but, you know, I've tried these other places, and it sounds okay and all, but really, I just, I find it better, works better, church is just Sunday mornings, I just find that it works better that way. And for those of you guys who are thinking that, let me argue this point to you this morning. We as humans are not meant to live life in isolation. And as Christians, I argue that we're not only meant to live in community, but I might even argue that we are commanded to live in community. And so with that, let's get started into this idea of community and Christianity. But of course, me, I don't work for the church, so I'm out in the real world. Now, uh, so I want to look at how, when I first started researching this, I want to look at how society views community, how society views this, this social interaction and how important it is. And interestingly enough, research on social interaction and health has been steadily increasing since about the 1960s. So some of the most comprehensive work on this subject has actually come from evolutionary biologists. And I'm a biologist, so I appreciated reading that. And that being said, we will also be using data and results from research of evolutionary biologists in church to explain a point in a sermon. So, you know, 2017, what a time to be alive. So anyways, it's a little bit difficult to kind of really hone in on the role of social interaction because when it comes to comparing between a lot of different people, there's a lot of variables that come into play. There's a lot of different things that can kind of skew the results one way or the other. And so the fancy research term is uh, this idea of social support. And so this idea of fixing social support with physical health, um, it's tough to truly isolate because you have to try and find people with similar health backgrounds, similar age, similar socioeconomic statuses. Do they live in rural or urban areas? that there's any number of factors and variables that can really skew the results and to try and hone in on this one thing. And so oftentimes with something like this, the best way to really hone in is to find a wide-ranging comprehensive study. And so the results I'm going to give you were from a July 2010 study called Social Relationships and Mortality Risk, a meta-analytic review. So what this study did was look at many other studies, meta-analytic And so it looked at all these other studies, and it looked at over 300,000 people from a number of geographic regions and ages to take a look at what social support had on these many subjects. So I'm going to take some lines directly from the article. Uh, And this article was originally published in uh, PLOS Medicine, P-L-O-S, and then was later quoted in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Slate, The Guardian, and CNN online. So remember, I'm just going to take this directly from this, this scholarly article. I sifted through it, did all the, the, the dirty work, so here you go. So quote directly from this article, data across 308,849 individuals indicate that individuals with adequate social relationships have a 50% greater likelihood of survival compared to those with poor or insufficient sufo- sufficient social relationships. The magnitude of this effect is comparable with quitting smoking and it exceeds many, known, many well-known risk factors for mortality, such as obesity and physical activity. Did you catch that? That literally people with good social support networks, the equivalent of having that and not having that is the equivalent of smoking and not smoking, according to this research. So this article even goes as far as to say that the number might be an underestimation due to the fact that social relationships are often very complex. That some, need, some people need a bigger social network than others, that type of thing. The article even mentions studies done in orphanages where, orphanages where infants would die even though they had uh, full access to medical care. Oftentimes, th- they wouldn't make it. But when they made changes in different policies and procedures that allowed them to be with other babies and other people, they, quote, there was a markedly, <laughs> markedly decreased mortality rate occurred. So simply put, social relationships influence the health and well-being of people of all ages. So looking at what the secular world says about the importance of community is really pretty simple and eye-opening. I mean, a quick Google search and you can really see the depth of the research that's being done. But we're here today to talk about what the Bible says about community. What what does the Bible say about social connectivity and relationships in regards to spiritual well-being? Or what the Bible says about this social support idea? So let me just say on the front end that to kind of ruin the ending for you guys, it's nice that science caught up to the Bible on this one. Because uh, what we see is that instance in the Bible relationships completely shaped uh, how we can view community. So let's just start let's just start in the beginning. That's always a good place to start. Let's just start in Genesis. So if you have your Bibles turn to Genesis real quick, and we're gonna start in chapter two. So in Genesis chapter two, while you're turning there. At this point, God just went on a creation spree. He's like your wife after a good spring cleaning with a Pinterest board full of projects. We're talking, he, went, he, just, he created day, night, sun, stars, water, air, atmosphere, birds, fishes, and even Adam, the first human who was created in his image. But there's something interesting about the transition that we see here in chapter two that we're gonna look at, and it's here in verse 18. So your Bible probably says some iteration of this. God looked down and said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, in this particular context, biblical scholars have often used the word the man here, which is the Hebrew word Adam, which is where we get the name Adam, because Hebrew, Adam, man. But it's also attributed to not just a singular man, singular Adam, but also can be translated to a plural mankind. So that's where it's used a little interchangeably throughout the Old Testament. And so if you take this into account, that up to this point in creation, everything that God had created, he had called good. Day and night, good. Air and sea, good. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, livestock and all the earth, good, good, good. But yet for the first time, God himself recognized that, this was, that his creation, his Adam, was missing something. That he was, sim- he was missing more than just an extra set of hands to help him around the Garden of Eden. But he was missing someone to talk to. He was missing someone to make him laugh, to share in that, that the bounty with him. He was missing community. And, and so let me just say that there were many things about Adam or Adam that we share in common. Uh, the consequences of original sin, that type of stuff. But the one thing that I want you to consider this morning is the need for community is just as credible now as it was way back then. And so let's take the story in Genesis and kind of build on it. We're just going to kind of take an overview uh, across a wide span of time here. And so let's just move move ahead, and if you want to, in Ruth, which is the book immediately after Judges, There's this tiny book that only has about 85 verses in there, but in it, we see one of the best examples of what community can do in the life of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, I'll have to condense this a little bit, so I'll give you the AJV version this morning, uh, just kind of keep us on track. But to catch you up with the story, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, leaving her with their two sons, one of whom had married Ruth, making her Naomi's daughter-in-law. Shortly thereafter, both of Naomi's sons passed as well, leaving all three of these women widowed. In a heartbreaking section of verses, the, this woman who had lost her husband and her two sons in pretty quick succession told her two daughters-in-law to go back to their parents and just, just don't worry about me anymore. Now, one of her daughters-in-law named Orpah, it's like Oprah, but we switched the P and the R there. Orpah took Naomi's request of her and returned to her family, which honestly, I I don't think I can blame her for that. Uh, Because at that point, you know, to get remarried, hanging around with your your ex-mother-in-law wouldn't be good for her prospects. And so she did, she at least just stood a chance at starting over somewhere, going back home to family. So here, but I want you to read uh, Ruth's response. To Naomi, when Naomi asked Ruth to, hey, just, just just leave, just go. I want you to read Ruth's response here uh, in chapter one, starting in verse 15, and just, just kind of listen to how she says this. And she, Naomi said, go, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, it's hard to imagine really anything getting any worse for Naomi. The love of her life had passed away, her two sons, who she had held, who she, she had fed and had watched as they grow uh, to the point where they were old enough to get wives for themselves, she lost all of it. Uh, and to the, she was at the point where when she and Ruth got back to Bethlehem, that when she introduced and she ran into one of her old friends, and her old, said, old friend said, hey, Naomi, what's going on? She said, no, 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 don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. She literally, she took on the identity of bitterness because she just she was so overwhelmed with grief. But yet in this time of struggle, and in this time of doubt and anger in the hand that she had been dealt with, Ruth came alongside of her and committed herself emotionally uh, to her emotionally ailing mother-in-law. And, and honestly, even in a time where now we, we're more connected than we've ever been, I think deep down we yearn for this type of connection with people, uh, to be both fully known and fully loved the same time. Just listen to some of these these lines. Where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people. Where you die, I will die. I mean, we crave marriages with this kind of commitment. We're talking about in-laws. So here, it's this true understanding of community, and I think the kind of community that God envisioned for his people, a togetherness that says I don't care what's going on in your life. I I will enjoy the good times with you and weep with you in the bad times. I will rejoice in the births and hurt with you in the miscarriages and in the infertility. I will celebrate new marriages, and I will come and cry in the loss of loved ones. I will party with you in health and mourn with you in sickness. I will pray over you and with you. You see, Hill City Church, we're not meant to do life alone to take life on in isolation, saying that I can just do this by myself, that I don't need anyone to help me, it's to jump without a parachute. It's a long descent of helplessness and flailing, resulting in a dramatic conclusion that could have probably been easily avoided. So reading the ordained importance of community in the beginning of Genesis, uh, the commitment to community in Ruth, and now let's take a look at community when maybe it's not so good. Uh, So turn if you want to, to Job chapter 2, and we see what not uh, to do in community. So the story of Job, again, condensed AJV version here, goes a little like this. Job, he's a strong Christian man. He's got a good family. He'd been blessed by God in a lot of different ways. But to prove that he was a faithful man, Job was pushed to his limit, losing everything that he had. His family, his wealth, his health, everything. In the midst of his suffering... His three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to him to try and lend an, a, a listening ear, to try and help them however they could. And when they first see him, they actually didn't even recognize him because uh, part of the health that had failed for him was uh, he got boils all over his body. So they literally didn't recognize him because of how bad his health was. Now, all this pain that he's in, this, this physical pain, this, this emotional and spiritual pain, he needed a strong community to come around and help him through this. And initially, his friends do that. But the trouble comes when they open their mouths. So it starts with Eliphaz trying to encourage him and remind him of God's strength and faithfulness, which is true, and it's not a bad reminder. But I want you guys to think back, it was a couple weeks ago, but to think back to Brad's sermon during the Advent series on depression. So understanding depression means that sometimes the answer of you just need to have more faith or you just need to get into the word more is not the right response. In this beginning part of Job's, you kind of get the sense that this is the kind of answer that he was getting from Eliphaz. Job responds kind of the way you would expect a man in his state to respond. Uh, He's frustrated at Eliphaz and in his depression and frustration questions God and openly asks what he did to deserve all this. Of course, it only gets worse from there when Bildad tells Job that he just needs to repent of whatever secret sin that he had that's making God do this to him. That's a great response. First off, I just want to say this, don't let that be your go-to response to somebody who's hurting, please. Uh, Yes, unrepentant sin does have consequences, but, but this response is just insensitive when the wounds are still so fresh and the pain is still so deep. Now, on top of everything else, his third stooge, Zophar, says this in Job 11.6, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Did you guys catch that? Basically, Job, because he has the audacity to hurt when bad things happen to him, to feel pain, this knucklehead tells him that he deserves worse. That's community when it's not done well. Uh, This is where the saying with friends like this, who needs enemies, kind of comes into play. So I want to elaborate a little bit on that point that Brad talked about a couple weeks ago. So God gave us feelings, and we're thinking community here, coming alongside of people in struggles and in pain and and in depression. That, As Christians, even to go a step further, we're often burdened to feel deeper than others because of our spiritual understanding of the end and, and what true helplessness is. But being a Christian does not make us immune to hurt or pain. Being a Christian is not some type of ointment that you can just rub on a wound and be told to start feeling better. True Christian community is loving. And like Paul's definition of love in his first letter to the Corinthian church hundreds of years later, to be loving, thinking back to 1 Corinthians 13, to be loving, that first love is patient. You must first be patient. It's not easy to be in community with with imperfect people because, of course, you're not imperfect at all. It's not easy to be in community with imperfect people. It's not easy to make other people a priority when it doesn't feel like they're making you a priority. It's not easy to create a break in your schedule to fit one more thing in. But it is essential. And to do it well, you must be patient to love each other. So speaking of Paul, no one thought higher of Christian community than Paul. If you ever want to see something interesting, just do a little study. Do a search on the words one another in Scripture. What you'll find is letter after letter of Paul urging and pleading with congregations, with churches just like Hill City, to come together in community and support one another. I just want to take some time and walk through some of these, just to give you an idea of the, the, the depth and the breadth of how many times he really hits on this. So let's go back to Corinthians. In his first two letters to the Corinthians alone, we see Paul saying not to deprive one another and come together more in chapter 7, verse 5, to wait and eat with each other in, chapters 11, in chapter 11, verse 33. In 2 Corinthians, he tells them not to compare and not to envy each other in chapter 10, verse 12. In 2 Corinthians thirteen, eleven, we see a plea of him to aim for restoration, comfort, and agree with one another, to live in peace so that the God of love and peace will be with them. In his letter to the church of Galatia, he tells them to bear one another's burdens in chapter 6. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, he lays into them about how they're treating each other by telling them to bear with one another in love. He also tells them to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, each other he's to sing songs with them to be kind uh to submit to each other out of reverence in his letter to the church in Colossae, he tells them not to lie to each other to bear with one another and to admonish each other to thessalonica he says to love one another to encourage one another and to do good to one another to the church in rome he talks about living in harmony with each other and to outdo one another showing honor and not to pass judgment in every letter That Paul wrote and I mean hear me here in every letter he wrote to the churches that he oversaw he hit on the importance of community the Lord can as the Lord continues to bless Hill City with new people that we get to welcome into our local church and even into the church universal let's be reminded of the same things that the churches in Rome in Corinth in Galatia and Ephesus Colossia Thessalonica and Philippi and the many others that they preceded that we value community. Do not take for granted the gathering of believers. Psalms 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The opportunity for us to come together with all of our skill sets, talents, abilities, and passions is nothing short of a miracle. If we were to sit back and hear about how each and every one of us got here to Hill City, not necessarily today, but just how we all found our way to Springfield, Missouri, to Hill City Church on January 1st, 2017, we would be astounded at the relentless goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. Let's just celebrate this time together. So when we see this focus on community starting in Genesis, the power of community in both the good and the bad in Ruth and Job, we see the countless pleas to commune with believers through the words of Paul. And even if you were to include James and John, they would expand even farther on the words of Paul. James says not to speak evil against one another or to grumble against each other, but to even go and confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. And John says that we are to love one another no less than about five times in his first and second letters. So the theme here, that, that community, it's not just a pleasant opportunity to indulge in when you have the chance, but community, true Christian community is an essential aspect of a person's life. So essential that I would argue that one cannot mature and grow into the person that God has them to be without community. And so that's kind of what we're wanting to be here at Hill City Church, especially with our city groups. This last semester, our groups went through a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. It's a book that, that, that challenged our view of the gospel and how it applies to our everyday life. And in particular, it noted the difference between justification and sanctification. It talked about the moment that you accept Christ, that you are forgiven, you are justified that there is no way you can, be given, you can be forgiven of your sins until you have accepted him and repented. However, after that moment of justification before God comes this idea of sanctification. Now, sanctification is not nearly as quick. It, it, it is a, a long process. It is the maturation of a Christian over time that culminates to the moment that we meet God face-to-face. And he looks at us, and as Christ says in Matthew 25, well well done my good and faithful servant the way that i had sanctification explained to me a while back was that sanctification is something that happens when something is being used and has reached its intended purpose so for example a pen is sanctified when it's being used to write or an album or a cd is sanctified when it's playing songs so for us as Christians, we are sanctified when we have reached and achieved all that we were created for. Now with a pen or a CD, its purposes are obvious. But for each of us individually, God created something unique. That with certain passions and skills to live very, very different lives. That he, is, he has mapped out all that you are to do. But I can promise you that those things are not to be done in isolation. This gospel-centered life book explains that the gradual process of sanctification happens as your understanding of God's holiness continues to grow, um, and that as you mature you realize how big and powerful God is, and it's through that understanding that shapes how you act and treat people. But likewise, as your understanding of God's holiness grows, so does your awareness of your own sin, And that these two things, growing and evolving in tandem, help to grow and build your understanding of the cross, and through a growing understanding of the cross, we're sanctified. So, now this process, like I said before, I don't feel can be done in isolation. There have been things that others have been taught, things that others have experienced, that when shared with you will help you in your growing understanding of God's holiness. Hearing the power of what God has done in other people's lives will help you to appreciate and be in awe of the God, our our God, who is and is capable of doing that. Being discipled and discipling only expands our understanding of what uh, of who God is and helps us to grow in our Christian maturity. So with that same idea, to continually grow in awareness, we must, and I repeat, must be in some type of community. Let's, let's just kind of think about it this way. there are, There are certainly sins that when you, you do them things such as sexual immorality or drunkenness that you inherently, probably even before you became a Christian, you knew that they were bad. Uh, the Holy Spirit was probably acting you on some way uh, early on to realize that this empty feeling that you had, this longing that there has to be something more out there, that, that this couldn't be all that there is. So that there's definitely those sins that just make you feel dirty and wretched, and in some way, that's good, because a lot of that is what brought many of you here today. But there's also that, those sins that they're not quite as obvious. They're like a snake in the grass, perfectly camouflaged with its surroundings, just lying in the weeds, waiting to strike at the most devastating moment sins like pride and selfishness that honestly are best realized and identified when you are in community with other people like if you are by yourself only worrying about yourself you probably don't realize when you're being selfish Does that makes sense same thing with pride if you're by your sense, by yourself only focusing on yourself you don't things you just don't see those things And that's why for a lot of people, marriage is such an essential part of their lives and sanctification, because it helps them to realize and identify areas of sin in their life before they destroy the people that rely on them. Romans 5.19, that says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man that many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man that many will be made righteous. It only takes that one, and that's why staying on top and understanding your sin is so important, because it just takes one. Through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. And it is in and through community that as our understanding of God's holiness grows, so does our awareness of our own sin that leads us to a life that God wants you to live through the process of sanctification. So today, I want to finish up with two things. The first things I want to, the first thing I want to do is address a couple of different groups of people in particular. So, in our studying and reading as leadership here at Hill City, we feel like it would be unloving of us to not encourage you to find community somewhere. We know that many of you hear how we do groups. We, you hear, you know, the guidelines, all these different rules, and this this formal structure that we have. And and honestly, it might not work for you. And I know for a fact we have a number of nurses with crazy schedules. We have police officers with sporadic calendars and we have coaches and teachers with more extracurricular demands than many of the students they coach and teach but we as leaders want to encourage you each and every one of you to find community somewhere to reach out and find a group of people somewhere who are willing to come alongside of you in your life and speak truth in your life and help you with things as they come up as silly as it sounds and i'm going to say this and because half of our pastors are gone. So I'm just gonna go ahead and say this. As silly as it sounds, we want to put our pastors out of business in the sense that many things that are associated with the work of pastors, we want to put into the hands of our communities, into the hands of our groups. Things like hospital visits, advice giving, prayer chains, uh, meal plans together for new parents. These are all things that we can do as a group of people living life together. And let me just say this too, and I want this to resonate with you. If you catch nothing else, I hope you hear this. The prayers of the pastors are not somehow more holy or more powerful just because they preach once a week. The prayers of the people who live life with you and know what they can really pray for for you are just as powerful as the words of our pastors, and maybe even more so because how much better they will know you. Do you see what I'm saying, Hill City? I hope that resonates with you a little bit, because this is something that that we're hoping to aim towards and slowly move towards as a group. Now, to those of you who might be finding community somewhere outside of Hill City, as long as you're finding community, look, that's great to hear, and I'm excited to hear that. But I do want to challenge you with this one thought. So earlier I mentioned about how oftentimes a word from someone else can be what helps you along with your, your sanctification process. But I want to ask you this, what if there's someone in this room right now that needs to hear how God has worked in your life to help them? What if you are that person for somebody else? And I think it's great that you're finding community, but consider investing in the people here at Hill City. And to those of you who are new here, hey, welcome. We hope that today you can just kind of get a glimpse of how we value community here at Hill City. And our vision is to promote gospel restoration to the lives of the people here in Springfield and in the surrounding areas through our communities. And if this is something you'd be interested in uh, and love to be a part of, just reach out to somebody with either a name badge outside or I'll be standing up front after this and we'd love to get you plugged in somewhere. But I want to end with this today. We value community because Jesus valued community. One of the first things he did when he began his ministry in life, was find a group of 12 guys to do it with. A lot of people don't realize Jesus only did ministry for about three years. So he waited about 30 years of his life, started doing ministry at 30. One of the first things he did was find a group of people to do it with. He took these guys wherever he went and invested into them on a daily basis to encourage them and admonish them as the situations dictated it. Even up to the point of his death, one of the last things that he did when facing death in the face, he had a meal with his friends. When facing the end of his life, he gathered his friends together and shared a meal with them. After living life with them, he brought them together to remind them of what was to come. Not to mourn, but to celebrate. And today, we get to celebrate in the same way as we did 2,000 years ago. So, band if you want to start making your way up i want to explain this meal a little bit if you aren't sure about this whole christianity thing then don't worry about it but if you are a christ follower we encourage you to come up and share in this meal as a community together to remember christ and what he did on earth and on the cross we take a piece of bread to remember the body that was broken for us we dip it in the drink to remember his blood that was shed And just as Christ did in community to help remember his sacrifice, we get to experience this as a community as well. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for all that you do for us. Help us to better understand who you are on a daily basis and help us come to a better understanding of who we are in you. God, I pray that you can teach us the things that you have for us, and we pray that you give us the eyes for the people around us. May we value the people around us and and the communities that you have as you want us to value it. God, give us patience and wisdom to love the people around us in the way they need it. May we not forget the sacrifice of Christ in his love for us, and may we love others the same. It's in your name we pray. Amen.